following is the first part of my interview with Natalie Jurasko, an American-born investment banker who served as the finance minister of Ukraine from 2014 through 2016. We talk about our own journey and look at how much Russia's invasion will cost Ukraine. I'm Roger Chang, and this is your Daily Charge. Well, welcome, Natalie. Thanks for your time. Uh, just to kick things off, can you talk a little bit about how you went from growing up in Chicago to becoming the finance minister of Ukraine? Because it's a fascinating, fascinating story. Thank you very much for having me today. And I, I grew up you know, a child of immigrants who had fled um, communism and, 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 and Nazism in World War II, and they were kind of blessed to be able to settle in the United States, in the Chicago area. And I grew up um, at a time when Ukraine was still part of the Soviet Union, called the captive nation. And we held our culture at, in very high regard. So we, we spoke Ukrainian. My grandparents didn't speak English. We went to school on Saturdays to learn about Ukrainian literature and geography and history. Never got to have a, a sleepover with my friends on a Friday night. <laughs> um, and then I kind of also grew up believing strongly that you know, the United States was this extraordinary place, having given my family an opportunity you know, to get off of a boat at Ellis Island with $5 in their pocket and create a real middle-class life. And I really grew up with a great deal of pride in what America could offer um, immigrants and what immigrants in return offer um, the United States. And um, after going to college at DePaul University and being very uh, much an immigrant kid studying business and accounting, um, I then decided to do what I really wanted, which was to go to the Kennedy School of Government and study public policy. Because I believed what Kennedy said, which is ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Um, my father actually disowned me um, pretty much at that point because my father coming out of communist, Stalinist, Soviet Union was kind of government was a bad thing. And mm -hmm. he wanted me to be in the business sector, private sector. It was very important to him. So he didn't come to my graduation at the Kennedy School. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, and then, you know, as I was ending my master's degree, the Soviet Union was going through, you know, President Gorbachev and Petestroika and Glasnost, and they were trying to reform. And then they, they, they were very unsuccessful at that, and the country fell apart um, in 1991, peacefully, peacefully, and Ukraine became an independent, sovereign country again. And I went to work um, in 89 at the State Department, and by the time the Soviet Union fell apart, they were populating all these new embassies. And so I actually went to Ukraine in 1992 first as the economic section chief at the American embassy there, as we just opened the embassy. There were like eight of us. I think there are over 400 today in the embassy, well, prior to its shutting down during the war. Um, and one thing led to another, and I had a great three years kind of introducing, you know, um, democracy and uh, capitalism, uh, privatization, uh, you know, transparency as a government official, but I felt like I hadn't gone far enough and that we couldn't make enough progress through governments and that what we really needed to do was show what in fact the middle class was made of. In other words, small, medium-sized businesses. So the United States government had made $150 million available to something called the Western NIS Enterprise Fund. Today, we'd call that social impact investing. And I became the country manager to manage that $150 million of investing in 1995. And enterprise funds had been created when the wall fell in Poland and Romania and Bulgaria, and they worked very well to kind of kickstart private equity. 
Um, and if a team, an investment team could do well enough, they would be able to spin out and form their own private uh, firm rather than working with US government money. And we were able to do that after a long time so that by 2006, we created our own private equity firm, Horizon Capital, me and three other four, three other partners, um, and raised private capital rather than relying on government capital. And uh, the size of the fund, uh, the first fund was about $130 million. The size of the second fund I raised was $390 million. So at one point we had about $600 million under management. And we were now investing in what I'll call mid-size, mid-cap companies. Um, but things that you'd understand, kind of a Peter Lynch, Fidelity, Magellan approach to investing, invest in what you understand. It wasn't high tech at that point. It was really brick manufacturing, candy manufacturing, retail grocery stores. It's a population of 45 million. So you had a market for pretty much any and all consumer goods um, and, um, and things like that. And the economy, you know, had gone in cycles of poor management and, and, and success and failure, success and failure until 2013, when a revolution uh, basically brought uh, the country to a, to a stop. Uh, Ukrainians had wanted to, to move towards the European Union, and the president chose not to move forward. And one thing led to another. He committed some unspeakable violence against innocent students, and by early 2014, he fled. And after, right after he fled, Russia invaded and illegally annexed Crimea. And then a couple of months later, they illegally occupied Donbass in the east. The currency collapsed. The treasury was empty, entirely empty. The country was in a free fall. The banking system was collapsing. And they came to me in December of that year and said, could you please be the minister of finance? It turns out that the newly elected president was my competitor in the candy business. Um, and so he knew me from being a competitor in the confectionery industry when I was a private equity person. And so in December of 14, I became minister of finance uh, of Ukraine at a time when we had a $40 billion balance of payments gap. Uh, the currency devalued some 40%. We had a 10% drop in GDP. Um, you know, we were falling off of the, the financial earth. We were about to default on our sovereign debt. I mean, everything that could go wrong. And we had to finance a war at the same time. And so that was how I ended up being Minister of Finance. Um, they kind of gave me a Ukrainian passport and said, can you get started? And, you know. <laughs> well, and, and then you, you, I mean, you basically restructured the debt and you really rejuvenated the economy or helped architect how the economy worked after that. I'm curious now, bringing it back to what's going on. Like, what, how, what are you thinking now as you, as you watch the uh, the attacks, the horrific scenes from Russia's assault? Well, what I think about is that as bad as 2015 was, it was nothing in comparison. Um, you know, the Russians are using a scorched earth approach, and they're bombing everything to smithereens, and they're killing civilians indiscriminately. They're not allowing for humanitarian corridors. They're shooting children, women, as they leave, um, as they did, frankly speaking, in Syria, and um, as they did in Chechnya before that. So this shouldn't come as a surprise to us, but you're always surprised when this type of violation of human rights occurs. You can never, a, a regular normal person can never kind of say, oh yeah, yeah that makes sense, because it doesn't make sense to a regular person, right? 
Um, the economy is, at a, is being suffocated. Um, Ukraine is second largest grain exporter in the world. And the ports are all either been bombed and or blocked. Um, all the airports are shut. Uh, most foreigners, not all, but most uh, who, who may have staffed uh, foreign investments in country have left. Um, and you know it's 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 bombings and air sirens. So the, the economy is at a full stop now. The only reason I think it's doing better than might be expected is because they had built we had we had built since fifteen a much stronger baseline. So we had we had no currency reserves in fifteen. We now have currency reserves in the central bank. We um, we have you know improved the tax system to the point where there's money in the treasury to pay the bills right now. Um, and so. Uh, the currency is stronger than, for example, the ruble next door, which has collapsed 40, 50 percent. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, when when you think about. And I believe Ukraine will prevail. The question will be what's there underneath. Right. When when we prevail, what's left. And so this is going to be like a Marshall Plan uh, effort that's going to be needed to rebuild basically from scratch. And then we have a second challenge, which is. There are about a million and a half refugees already. The expectation is 10 will leave. That's a quarter of the population. How do you rebuild fast enough to give them confidence to come home? That, that's that's an interesting question because that, we're talking about problems that are just, I mean, they, they kind of boggle the mind in terms of just how large scale they are. I mean, 10 million people is just it's massive. Um, we're already talking about like the largest displacement of, of humans right now and we're not even there and so I, i'm curious how that in terms of a marshall plan like structure like, like how how would you envision that rolling out and and um yeah because there's i imagine there's just a lot that has to be done with that so i i don't think we even have visibility as to all the damage yet i mean we're seeing you know certain videos um the internet is fabulous because we're getting real-time information but we're only seeing what we see. We don't know what we don't see. Um, I guess if I were to just think about how to rebuild, I would start, you know, with, <clears throat> and I've unfortunately uh, experienced here in Puerto Rico post-hurricane and post-earthquakes on what reconstruction is requires. But I mean, the first thing you have to do is a, is a damage assessment across the whole country to figure out what, in fact, uh, is standing and what is is not. And then, you know, in terms of fundraising, it's going to have to be bilateral, meaning, you know, our Western partners, um, countries that are supportive of Ukraine, it'll have to be the international financial institutions, whether that's IMF, World Bank, EBRD. And then frankly speaking, you know, there has to be a substantial part of this that is reparations paid for by Russia. It is. It goes without saying that they have to contribute the bulk of the funding that is necessary. And you know, one way to do that would be to take all the frozen Central Bank of Russia monies and or frozen oligarch monies and put that into the reparations fund immediately. Um, another way to do that would be through negotiations, but I mean, it's hard right now to foresee those kinds of negotiations given where Putin uh, is and where he stands uh, with regard to, to the Western world. So I think you're talking about when, when in 15, we estimated that 7% of the territory and 20% of GDP had been lost. And we estimated that the cost of that then, after a year of war, and now we're eight years into this war and it's expanded to the whole territory of the country, 
We, we, we thought then it was tens of billions. This is going to be hundreds of billions. That's it for the first part of my three-part interview with Natalie Teresko, former finance minister of Ukraine. Stay tuned tomorrow for part two. If you have any questions, ping me on Twitter at Roger W. Chang. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and subscribe to the podcast. It really helps us out. For Daily Charge, I'm Roger Chang. Thanks for listening.